Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Cole and I'm doing stuff, baby. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com and the Twitter and the Instagram and of course the Facebook page, which you can find over at facebook.com slash how, how good it is pod. Have I got some trivia for ye this week? <laughs> of course I do. I would like you to tell me what band unwittingly got its name from Nazi atrocities in World War II. Somebody suggested the phrase to them. They thought it sounded cool, and so far as I can tell, they didn't realize until later on what the name actually referred to. I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we get to the end of the show. Once again, what band unwittingly got its name from Nazi atrocities from World War II? Yikes. So the first time ever I saw your face, it's another one of those songs that when you scratch the surface just a little bit, turns out to be another one of those tunes that you didn't know was a cover. What's more, it was recorded several times before Roberta Flack came along, but Flack's version wasn't a hit either when it first came out, that is. So let's all go all the way back to 1957 and a British singer-songwriter named Ewan McCall. Now, McCall was typically a political musician, but he had a little bit of a romantic side. McCall frequently performed in folk clubs around Britain with Peggy Singer. And if that last name sounds familiar, yes, she's related to Pete Seeger, their half-siblings. They share a father in common. At any rate, at that time, McCall was married to a dancer named Jean Newlove, but being married to Jean didn't mean that our boy didn't fool around with Peggy. And given that he had 20 years on Peggy, yeah, there was some scandal involved there. Now, here's where the origin story splits just a little bit. According to McCall, Seeger asked him to write the song for a play she was in, and he played it over the phone to her because she was in the United States, and he couldn't follow her because it was the 1950s, and he had been a communist 20 years earlier. Seeger's version of the story is that he would send her tapes from time to time when they were apart, and this song was on one of the tapes. Either way, McCall wrote for Seeger, and they wound up playing it together whenever they performed on the folk club circuit. Now, while you might think there's something a little bit goofy with her performance here, you got to bear in mind that A, it's a folk song at this point, and B, melodically, it's got an old English or a Scottish feel to it. And then in both instances, there's a little bit of unpredictability baked into the whole thing. In 1963, the Kingston Trio got a hold of the song and included it on their album, New Frontier, meaning that while the song wasn't a hit for the band, the album was, and so the song, by association, hit the mainstream. The first time ever I saw your this album, therefore, was the gateway for most fans of the song, and many will argue that it's the definitive version. But I would argue that with many art forms, especially music, what we call definitive is usually the interpretation that we were first exposed to. 
And let me give you a quick example. Most people are familiar with Edvard Munch's painting called The Scream, which has that ghostly looking figure maybe standing on a bridge with his hands over his ears and his mouth wide open. Well, clearly this guy is screaming because the sky is red and maybe the world is ending. So of course he's going to scream. And that's the way most people look at it. You see a painting called The Scream, you see the guy there, so it's a picture of a person screaming. But in addition to the color images that he made, and there are four different versions of it, there's also a black and white lithograph that Munk made. And on that lithograph is an inscription which reads, I felt the great scream throughout nature. In other words, the guy on the bridge is covering his ears to block out the scream. He's not the screamer. So basically what I'm saying is, once again, your initial interpretation, how you're first exposed to it, that's the one that tends to lock into your head. Anywho, uh, Kingston Trio's recording of the song turned out to, turned it into kind of a folk staple, and it turned up on other albums by other folk artists, including Peter, Paul, and Mary, the Chad Mitchell Trio, and this one from Gordon Lightfoot on his 1966 debut album. In your eyes And the moon and stars Were the gift you gave And go figure, Ewan McCall made no secret of the fact that he hated all the covers of his song. His daughter-in-law, Justine Picardi, once said that McCall had a special section in his record collection that he called the Chamber of Horrors. In fact, he thought the 1972 version by Elvis Presley was especially bad. And, and to be fair, he wasn't wrong in that respect. The first time ever I saw your face, I thought the sun rose in your eyes. It's actually kind of hard to find this recording, but if you have the American Trilogy 45, it's on the B-side. It uh, wound up on a compilation album called Elvis Aaron Presley uh, in 1978, shortly after he died, and it's on the CD reissue of the Elvis Now album, which had a lot of extra bonus tracks added to it. So there you go. That's enough of that. So if you listen to the whole thing now, that's your fault. Uh, I will say this, though. It's pretty clear that Elvis was influenced by Roberta Flack's version. All right. Now, let me jump back to McCall and Seeger for a minute, because you need to know this part in order to get something that comes later. As I mentioned, McCall wrote the song for Peggy Seeger in the late 50s. At the time, he was married to someone else, but he was having an affair with Peggy. So whatever the origin of the song, whether he wrote it for a show or it just kind of appeared on a demo tape, it's clear that the lyrics basically reflect that, that rush you get from new love, right? Your head explodes and everything is magnified. Of course the earth moves when you kiss. Of course the sun rises and sets on your lover. And every time you as a couple do anything for the first time, it just confirms every wonderful thing you suspected about them. So anyway, the, the relationships got weird for a little bit because Seeger, who was an American, had visa issues and she wanted to stay in the UK. So she married another British guy so she could stay. It was a you know marriage of convenience. And then later on, they got divorced. And in the meantime, McCall got divorced. And so McCall and Seeger finally got back together and eventually married in 1977. And they stayed married until he died in 1989 following heart surgery. 
So let me jump now to Roberta Flack. Flack grew up in a musical family, but it was also clear early on that she was a prodigy at classical piano, enough that she was attending Howard University on a full scholarship by the time she was 15 years old. Eventually, she changed her major from piano to voice, and she eventually graduated at the age of 19. Flack became a music teacher in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and she also did gigs on the side accompanying opera singers, and sometimes during intermission, she would play in the back room accompanying herself on jazz and blues tunes. But her voice teacher said, you know, she could probably do well in pop music, so she gradually changed her repertoire. This ultimately led to a regular job in a D.C. nightclub, and she was able to quit teaching and concentrate on the music full-time. It was while performing at one of these clubs in 1969 that she was discovered by musician Les McCann, who arranged an audition for her at Atlantic Records. The audition went well, and she cut her first album, titled First Take. In about 10 hours, it all went quickly because she had been playing the songs so often and for so long in the clubs. And one of the songs she played on that first album was The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face. Now, Flack knew it from this 1963 recording, which is from a duo called Joe and Eddie. So you can see it slowed down a little bit from McCall's version, but it's still got a lot of folk attitude attached to it. Now, clearly, Roberta Flack has slowed it down even more and given it more of a, a jazzy feel with the strings, the, the acoustic guitar. There's very little audible piano except a couple of fills here and there. And I would have sworn that was a stand-up bass, but the only bass credit on the album is a bass guitar. But it's, it's not quite jazz. It isn't really folk. It's not really soul. It's not quite gospel. And yet it has elements of all of the above. And the musicians were all jazz pros, so they recognized the need to just get out of the way and let her do her thing vocally. So the album First Take came out, and frankly, not much happened with it. Then her second album came out, and still not much happened. Flack had a couple of singles, but none of them got any higher than the mid-70s on the Billboard chart. But... In 1971, something happened. Flack got a call from an actor who was looking to break into directing. He had heard the song, and he wanted to use it in his movie. That actor-director was Clint Eastwood, and the movie was called Play Misty for Me. Now, for those of you who don't remember, Play Misty for Me is a psychological thriller about a disc jockey who hooks up with a listener, and she turns out to be obsessively possessed with him. It's kind of a common theme in movies nowadays, but at the time, it was pretty groundbreaking stuff. 
So Eastwood told Flack about the movie, and he promised her that the scene he had in mind for the song was in the only part of the movie that was about absolute love. So she agreed to let it be used and asked if she could re-record the song for the movie, thinking that eh, it might be a little bit too slow. He convinced her, oh no, it's not, and that was pretty much that. Now, having mentioned that, there's also a story that Flack tells that when she first recorded the song for the first Take album, her producer, Joel Dorn, suggested that she speed it up a little bit, and she was the one who resisted. According to her, Dorn asked, okay, so you don't care if the song is a hit or not? And she said, no, sir, but she conceded he was right for a couple of years, at least, until Clint Eastwood got his hands on it, and the movie became a hit. It was the success of the movie that convinced Atlantic Records to go back and release the song as a single in March of 1972, about three months after the film's release. Now, once again, I have to explain something to the younger set. Back then, before the home video era, films tended to remain in theaters much longer because there wasn't any pressure to get it into any medium other than broadcast television. So the smaller films were given a chance to grow, and the bigger ones could stick around for months at a time before the TV rights were sold. Thus it was with Play Misty for me that it was still in the theaters three months after it was released, and the first time ever I saw your face was still able to ride on its success. So in the spring of 1972, Roberta Flack had her first number one hit on both the Billboard Hot 100 chart and the Easy Listening chart, where it spent six weeks. And it came from an album track cut a few years earlier. After that, her third album, and then her duet album with Donny Hathaway, came out in quick succession, and she was suddenly all over the radio for a while. The record didn't see a lot of international action, but it was number one in Canada and number 14 in the UK, and the song won the Grammy Awards for both Song of the Year and Record of the Year for 1973, beating out Don McLean's American Pie. Now, besides the ones I've already mentioned, there are lots and lots of covers of this song, and even though it was written for a woman's voice from the standpoint of its original range and the way that it escalates in each verse, you know, a, a quick glance at the artists who have covered it says to me that it's a pretty even mix of men and women who have done covers. And at this point, most of them are pretty faithful to Roberta Flack's version rather than Peggy Seeger's or even Joe and Eddie, for that matter. So I'm not going to get into them all, but I do want to bring one of them to your attention because it's pretty good, but there was also some controversy surrounding it. In the spring of 2012, the band Flaming Lips recorded their cover of the song with Erica Badu singing lead. The band's leader, Wayne Coyne, had a concept for the video that involved some scenes which had Badu in a bathtub nude, because, you know, bathtub, and covered in blood and glitter and singing the song as she moves about in the tub. Now, Badu balked at the whole concept, but agreed to shoot the video in a tub of regular water and with some clothes on. But being a sport about the art of it all, and Coyne's vision as an artist, she suggested that they get her sister Nayrock to do the nudity and the blood and the glitter, and they could maybe come up with a version of the video where the two versions are cut together, kind of like the Nirvana video I talked about in episode 101. Nayrock was game, 
and they shot the video. The problem came when Coyne cut the video and gave the pop music site Pitchfork the go-ahead to post the video without letting either Erica or Nayrock see the result first. Badu, of course, was remarkably angry, and the video was taken down within a day. Now, the band accepted full responsibility for allowing Pitchfork to post the video prematurely and apologized to Pitchfork and Erica and Nayrock and any fans who might have been upset, and they emphasized this was a Flaming Lips project and shouldn't reflect badly on Erica Badu or Nayrock. But the damage was done, and Badu tweeted out a long response, basically spelling out all the ways in which Wayne Coyne was a jerk to her and her sister throughout the process. You might find the occasional still photo from the video, but as far as I know, it is otherwise gone. Although the recording of the song, which is over 10 minutes long, is still available on their album, The Flaming Lips and Hetty Fwens. Now what you're hearing right now is not the Eric Badu version. Eventually, they recorded another cover of the song using Amanda Palmer for the vocals, and they shot another video with Palmer in a tub of clear water, interspersed with shots of individual band members striking objects in time with the big drum beats. You can find the Amanda Palmer version on the internet, but I'm telling you now, don't go looking for it if you're offended by female nudity. Oh, and finally, given that Roberta Flack's version of the song has made McCall and her, his widow a big pile of money between it being a hit for Flack and all the various cover versions, some of which have charted here and there, is it possible that Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger like that version by Roberta Flack? Nope. It's part of the Chamber of Horrors collection. And now it's time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you about the band that, without knowing it, got its name from a phrase that related to Nazi atrocities. Here's the backstory. The band in question began their career in high school in the late 1970s, calling themselves Roots, because their signature song was a composition by one of the members titled, I've Got Roots. When they lost their bass player and got another one, they changed their name to The Cut. After another change of bass player, they became The Makers. They changed bass players yet again, and now they were called Gentry. And let me stress, we're only up to 1978, but they still had one more change to make. Over the next year, the overall sound of the band began to change from a power pop sound to a more electronic sound, as most bands were doing at that point. They were playing at a club in Soho called Billy's when a journalist friend of theirs suggested they changed the name of the band to something he had seen written on a bathroom wall while he was on a trip to Berlin, Germany. What's not 100% clear is whether this friend knew that the phrase he'd seen refers to the jerking movements made by Nazi war prisoners when they were being hanged at the Spandau prison. And that's how, on December 5th, 1979, the band made its debut before an audience as Spandau Ballet. And that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. If you want to get in touch with the show, well, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. 
You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod, or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show, and next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we visit another song with an organ in it when we move from the face to a whiter shade of pale. I'm sorry, that was a weird joke. Thanks for listening anyway. I will talk to you next time.